Awesome, awesome. Grab a seat, grab a seat. You'll get tired if you stand up. Awesome. Who's had a good holiday? Give me a wave if you had a holiday. Who's working all the way through? You're just charging it. Who are the heroes? Give us a wave. Ah, awesome. Awesome. Very good. If you don't know me, I'm Jordan, exactly the same as Scott just said. Uh, and uh, we're visiting uh, from Wellington. And uh, how many people love Wellington? Awesome. You should visit sometime, those of you who like it. Uh, it's not as good as it looks on TV. But uh, anyway... It's uh, lovely to be here, and, um, and I reckon I was talking to Pastor Helen before the service. Last Sunday and this Sunday, uh, they're sort of my favorite two Sundays of the year uh, because we haven't really started yet. And like last year, it's like last Sunday, Christmas is finished, you know. And these two Sundays, a little bit of the pressure goes off our life, right? Because it's sort of, even if you're working through, there's not as much traffic, and we're in a bit of holiday mode, right? Okay, good. Two people realize. Well, yeah. How many people agree? A bit of holiday mode, right? And I think holiday mode is quite helpful because you can, you can think a bit different when the pressure goes off, right? When you're pushing, 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 you don't get to have any new ideas because you're just like, oh, I've got to keep going, right? But these two Sundays, I think, are quite special in the year. And Sunday, I guess, is designed to be like this all through the year. As the pressure goes off a little bit, allows us to open our hearts some more, hear God some more, so that we can keep focused on what we're doing, okay? The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2 that we are God's masterpiece. Everyone say masterpiece. Okay, so think like, so Leonardo, Leonardo da Vinci painted lots of paintings, but he only painted one Mona Lisa, right? And in the same way, she had did lots of songs, but they only wrote one home again, right? There's such a thing as a masterpiece that defines not just a band, but a whole genre, like a whole feeling, right? A whole culture for us bogans, right? A song like that is a masterpiece. And when it comes to God, God defines His work in the world and in reality is defined in the gospel, Right, It's his masterpiece. Of all the other things he did, they're all amazing and they reveal his glory, but his masterpiece is only revealed, his ultimate glory is only revealed in the work of the gospel inside you, right? Here's a scripture from Isaiah that the team at the back have got, and they're going to put it, I'll keep facing that way, uh, put it magically up on the screen. There it is there. Um, so it says this, He has made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He's made me a polished arrow in his quiver. He's hidden me away. This is like a, a prophecy that referring to Christ, but also speaks of the work of Christ in our life. That when God begins working and he makes us a masterpiece, it's an interesting type of thing that he makes us. So he's not made us a painting that hangs on the wall. He's not made a vase that just sits on a plinth. He's made an arrow. Right, so if you come home from work, uh, you know, uh, husbands, you come home from work and your wife is making an arrow. Right, well, it's for dinner. Well, all, I, all I've made is this. Right, you know, there's, well, you don't sit down to make an arrow unless there's purpose. Do you get what I mean? Unless there's some sort of purpose. You don't make an arrow just like, oh, I don't know what I'll do with it. No, an arrow is for firing at things to kill them. Right, there's only one thing for it. Right? It's not like, oh, I just made this thing, I just, I just was creating and this just came out. If that's, the, if that's the issue, then you've got issues, right? You make an arrow, you make an arrow to fly through the air, right, and to hit a specific target with destructive force, right? I was in this room when we celebrated a thousand people in Auckland City Church. A thousand balloons all came down. 
We popped them away. It was awesome. Right? But now Equipers are spread across the world, and we'll be touching 10,000 people this year. Right? And at the center of our, of our logo, it's not a little house on a lean. It's an arrow. I don't know who designed that thing, but it's not a little house on a lean. It's not like play school. Don't come along and think it's play school when there's going to be Big Ted, Pastor Bruce's Big Ted, and Pastor Sam's Little Ted. <laughs> right? It's not a play school. It's an arrow. Because God, we know, what we believe about you is that God made you for a specific purpose. God made you for a thing. With, and God made you with violent intent. God made you to fly through the air and hit some target with destructive force. So we, you'll never turn up at church for, to be entertained. You'll never turn up at church just to be, just to be cuddled. Well, there's some cuddly people around, but... But actually, Equipus Church is about adding weight, strength, straightness, a sensitivity to the Holy Spirit so that you can fly and hit the thing that you're made to hit. Is that okay? One of the things people ask me regularly is, that, is do I get nervous? Because I've, I've changed my job recently. I'm no longer the senior pastor of the church, which is good. It means I don't have to organize any budgets anymore. Uh, and uh, it's brilliant, and, uh, and all I do now is talking. I talk on Sundays at various places, and then I talk throughout the week at other places. Sometimes I'm trying to sell people things, not today. Sometimes I'm trying to sell people things during the week, and sometimes I'm trying to convince people to take better care of themselves in the workplace, right? So I'm just, I only do talking, right? So my whole week is just talking. I stop when I'm sleeping. But um, <laughs> people ask me, do you get nervous doing public speaking? And I always, what I do is I put on, when people ask me that, I put on a serious face. And I say, yes, it's very nerve-wracking. Because I like to say that, because I like to lie, so I feel like I fit in. <laughs> but, um, but, I actually, but I actually never get nervous public speaking, and there's two reasons. I never get nervous public speaking, there's two reasons. Number one, I really enjoy being the center of attention. It's actually... To me, in my mind, somewhere in my psyche, it sort of feels right that I would stand here and you would sit there and you'd all look at me, <laughs> right? Like, clapping's good too, like, that really works. Uh, like, it sort of just feels like the way things are supposed to be. Like, people are supposed to pay attention, they're supposed to look at me, supposed to laugh, you know, they're supposed to be like, oh, Jordan. You know, that's how, that sort of feels like it's supposed to be. And the other reason I don't get scared public speaking is because I've done a lot of dangerous jobs. I, I, obviously, I look like a dangerous person, and I've done a lot of dangerous jobs. I was, I was a youth leader here. <laughs> like, I was a youth leader here when Aurangi was a teenager. Although he was never really a teenager, he's always been a middle-aged man. <laughs> but when Aurangi was in a teenage body, as well as being a funny old man, he was here, right? I was a youth leader when Tia was at youth. And we used to go and collect him from somewhere in Mount Roskill. We'd slow down. He'd come out from the bushes, jump in the van. And before that, I was a school teacher. And a lot of people laugh when I say school teaching is dangerous, but that's because they've never done it. Obviously, it's short hours, nine till three, and you just go home and 12 weeks off a year. So that makes it good. Uh, but the thing that makes it bad is there's a lot of kids. And I can remember I was teaching uh, uh, at Mount Roscoe Intermediate School, 
I was doing a, place, a, a teacher placement there as I was training, and, and I was teaching the most dangerous thing you can teach anybody, not maths or whatever. You can get someone else to teach them that, and you just swap around, and you just teach PE. <laughs> swap it around, so you just teach. I just mainly taught PE and silent reading. <laughs> These were my specialties, so that's what I focus on. And we were, we, were, we were heading out to the backfield there, and we had, I, had a, I had a trolley full of discuses, and then this big kid, some big kid bigger than me, he had a trolley full of javelins. How know this is a dangerous subject today, right? We're teaching athletics, and I was pushing these things out to the backfield, and two thoughts crossed my mind. First of all, I thought, where did the school get these trolleys from? Right? And the second thought was, I'm going to need some sort of a safety plan. And so I lined the kids up. So in groups of 10, there's 38 or 40 kids or something like that. So I lined them all up in groups of 10, and then we had 10 throwing objects, javelins, and then we just kept it simple, you know, one, two, three, you know, throw it. And, then, and, and 90% of the time, the javelins went over there. But there was a few kids, and uh, they would do this one. And they would do that. Right, so... With the javelin, it would go 90% of the time that way, and then 10% of the time it sort of went back towards the class colleagues. And so we moved it to the side, so we were throwing that way, and then 10% of the kids throwing that way. Uh, and, um, and that was where, but the, the thing was with the discus, because you're going from that as a general action to this one, right? And if you know anything about, uh, about um, physics, is it called physics? If you know anything about physics, Going from that to this is enough to create all sorts of possibilities. <laughs> Instead of just going that way or that way, the discus now could fly literally anywhere. Except it didn't. Because the mind of a Form 2 child is controlled by deep and very dark forces. <laughs> Am I, is that right, Miles? I'm just looking for someone who's most recently in Form 2. Right, deep and dark forces. So the discus didn't go just anywhere. It always, it always came out of that child's hand flying at the thing they hated the most. So if you don't think I had a dangerous job, you don't know how many discuses I had to dodge that day. The thing, the thing about the discus and the reason for that whole story is that when you throw a discus, it's not about how hard you throw it. It's much more about how you aim it. Okay, so when you, when you pick up a discus, imagine you're picking up a discus. Imagine that. Maybe act it out. Well, a kid discus is like 500 grams, and a grown-up discus is something like 2 kilograms. Uh, when you pick up a, if you pick up something 500 grams, and if you're going to throw it, so let's say I'm going to throw a discus over that way. Obviously, I could throw it f very far, farer than that wall. But if I'm going to throw it, let's say I'll throw it that way, I'm gonna th maybe I can throw it all the way to the sound desk, it would probably land on that. But if I throw it like that, when you throw it, when you pick it up, you sort of know how far you can throw it, right? Like if you pick up a rock, you know, if it's, if it's 17 kilos, you, you're not, you sort of know it's not going to go very far. Yeah, but if it's less than that, you sort of get a feel for it, and you sort of can aim because you're sort of, I was just, sure, I was just assuming you've thrown a rock before, right? If you've done it before, you pick up, when you pick up a thing, you get a, as soon as you pick it up, you feel like, oh, it's going to go about, it's going to, I can get Matt Lonsdale from here, you know, like, it'll work, right? But when you throw a discus, you can't, you can't throw it aiming at where you know it's going to land, even though you know where it will land. 
Like if, I, if I'm throwing a discus, let's say I know, I know it's going to land about here, right? But when you throw the discus, if I aim here, it's going to land here. So some of Madeline's friends, they didn't like the A team and the school soccer team. They're like 15-year-old girls, so they didn't like practicing in the bossy coach. So they, at trials, they aimed for the B team. So they got in the C team. <laughs> when, I was, when I was doing school certificate, we had a pretty strong focus as a family, or a pretty, pretty strong ethos as a family, that 51% represents a 1% wasted effort. There's not a philosophy that all of the adults, but most of the, yeah, or definitely all of the cousins held that and some of the uncles. But the reality is when you aim it, when you're aiming at 50%, how many of you know I got a, I got a 36? Right, because when you, when you aim a discus, you actually have to aim it above where you know it's going to land. You actually have, even though you know it's going to land, like when you throw something, you sort of got a feeling it's going to land somewhere, right? But when you throw a discus, Watch them do it on the TV, right? Think about when you did it in Form 2, right? You don't throw it like that. Well, it's going to land over there. You, you throw it up above. You, you don't even aim at the field. You, you don't even aim at the pine trees at the back of the field. You don't, you don't aim at anything. You aim at it into, into space. You literally, if you're going to achieve a thing, like, if you're going to achieve something at the, at, at the optimum of what you can achieve, like if you're going to throw a discus as far as you can throw it, like you're never going to throw it forever, right? But you have to aim like you will. If you're going to throw it as far as you can, you have to imagine you're going to throw it as far as you can imagine. If, if you're going to start a business, if you want your business to be partially successful, don't, please don't start the business. Well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be a school teacher and I'm going to be a relatively okay one. Don't aim to be relatively okay at a thing, even though you know that's where it will land. <laughs> right, because you've done enough. You've, it's not your first rock you've thrown. You know it's only going to be relatively okay, but don't aim there. Right, 2019, do you know what? It's going to be okay. But don't aim at that. You'll probably just make it to the end of the year, take a deep breath and have a holiday and think, wow, right? Is that inspiring? I think it's inspiring. <laughs> Do you know what? You have to aim for the stars if you're going to go as far as you can, right? But then you have to be real about the fact that your discus isn't going to hit the stars, <laughs> Right? But it's not about where it lands, it's about where you aimed. Because where you aim is the critical thing. Where you aim will control it landing as far away as possible, right? Okay, you're looking confused, which is was my goal at this point. So there's two characters in the Bible that I think illustrate this for us in a way that I think will help you understand how it might work in life. Is that okay? Right, does anyone get the general idea? We're aiming high. Right? Because if we aim low, we'll achieve even lower. Right? But we're aiming high, but we're also not stupid. Right? We're aiming high, but we've also, this is not the first New Year's diet we've been on, right? <laughs> we've all done that Monday through Wednesday diet plan, right? 
It's not our first time, right? But we still know that if we're going to get anywhere, we've got to aim, right? So these two guys in the Bible, they're, uh, uh, they're two kings, King Saul and King David. And they're a pretty big deal in the Bible. If you haven't heard of them, you need to read your Bible more. It tells, the Bible, in, through 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, it tells the story of their, of their life. It tells the story of their reign as kings in quite a lot of detail. They're two of the real high-detail characters in the Bible, which allows us to look at them and sort of understand a little bit how they're thinking. Because we've got the Psalms from King David as well. We can see how he felt about lots of stuff that was happening as well. So they're quite useful characters for us to get an idea of how God works in our life, right? So the first thing about uh, King Saul and King David that's interesting is that their lives were almost exactly the same. They were both from pretty nowhere sort of places. They were both from pretty nowhere sort of tribes, but God chose them. God chose these guys specifically. The first way, the first story is funny. King Saul is going looking for donkeys. Hey, I've lost my, he'd, he'd lost some donkeys and he was looking for them, you know? Uh, how do you, I don't know how you find, like, Ah, I've lo- lost some donkeys. Oh, what do they look like? Oh, you know, long ears, big ears, long. <laughs> so something about the ancient world is they could tell the difference between donkeys, right? But he was off looking for donkeys, and then the prophet Samuel wakes up in the morning, and God speaks to Samuel and says, there's a guy coming looking for donkeys. Anoint him as king, right? So, so Saul turns up looking for donkeys, knocks on the tent. He says... You know, looking for some donkeys, and then Samuel steps out. Imagine he's like, he gets a half liter of olive oil and just splashes it all over him. (laughs) You're going to be the king. Why? Because you were looking for donkeys. Like, it's not a, it doesn't seem an obvious qualification. I'm out looking for donkeys, so I accidentally got made king, right? David, though, different. There was a big party that he wasn't invited to. He was out looking after sheep. And then Samuel, the same guy, calls him out and, and calls him to the party. And then the same thing, same jar, same olive oil recipe, same half liter or liter of olive oil splashed all over him because you were out looking after sheep. You're now the king. Right? So they were chosen out of an unlikely situation, right? So both chosen and then they were both anointed. And the anointing talks about God giving you the power to do what you've been chosen to do, right? And then they were both phenomenally successful. David's first outing as king, this was the killing of Goliath, which is a story you must have heard of. That was his first trip out as king. He kills Goliath, saves the whole nation. People start singing songs about him. Right? Saul also extended the kingdom further than it had been before, uh, just defeated their enemies, pushed back the enemies, created more territory. They were both phenomenally successful and they were both spectacular failures. And I thought to myself, this is the same for all of us. We've all been chosen, we've all been anointed, we've all been successful, and we also know how to fail spectacularly. Right? It's the, same, it's the same story. We all know God's choosing. I hope you've had the experience of God's power touching your life and coming into life. That's something that's available to you. We've all experienced the success of doing something with purpose, finding something and living a life of meaning, at least 
from a Monday through to a Wednesday, right? We've had those sort of successes, but we also know what it's like to fail. So I want to look at the failure for a little bit. Is that okay? This first scripture is where Saul has messed up. So you understand that how Saul messed up was he, he made some technical errors about what was his role as king versus what was Samuel's role as the prophet. And what in the story, he sacrifices some animals to God, which he should have waited for Samuel to sacrifice. So it's a technical, legal, and religious error that Saul's made. And this is the scripture of it, right? So it starts out like this, and, and Samuel says, what have you done? I know that if someone starts their conversation like that, it's going to be a bad one. And Saul said, when I saw the people were scattering from me, and you didn't come in the time you appointed, and the Philistines had mustered a mic-mash, I said, now the Philistines are going to come down against me at Gilgal, and I've not sought the Lord for favor. Check this bit out. This is the... This is the bit that's just like you and me. So I forced myself. You ever had to force yourself to eat that whole chocolate cake? <laughs> I forced myself and I offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you've done foolishly. You've not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. Then the Lord, if you had, the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. If you're, if you're just listening to the audio, I'm gesturing to the stars, right? So God would establish your kingdom forever, except you've made this error, which here seems to be a technical error. He wasn't supposed to be leading the worship. He was supposed to be preaching, but he led the worship. Right? That could be bad even today. That could be a punishable thing, depending on who the person preaching is, right? But he made this technical error, and he loses what he's lost grip of is eternity. Because he was focused in on the Philistines, the people scattering, I'm focusing on here. He loses his grip on his eternal vision. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, right? After God's heart. The Lord's commanded him to be prince of his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Fast forward a couple of chapters, Saul does the same thing again, basically, right? So jumping forward to chapter 15, Samuel says to Saul, I'll not return with you, right? So this time there's a big party and, and Saul has, has misapplied what God said. He's got it, he's got it all confused, he killed some people, but not the right people. He killed some animals, not some other animals. You need to read the story to get the details. But he's messed up the detail in the here and now. And Samuel says, I'm not coming back with you to the party because you've rejected the word of the Lord. And the Lord has rejected you from being king of Israel. And as Samuel turns to go away, Saul grabs his thing and it rips his jacket. And then Samuel says, the Lord's ripped the kingdom out of your hand in the same way you've ripped this jacket, and he's going to give it to your neighbor who's better than you. The, and God, God then says he's not going to change his mind, right? And, and then check, check out this. I want you to notice what Saul says at the end. He says, Saul then says, um, I've sinned, right? So Saul's realized that his discus has hit the ground. And then he says this. He said, I've sinned, but honor me here and now in front of the elders of the people and before Israel, and then return with me, and I'll bow down with you before the Lord, right? Just notice that. It will make more sense in a little bit. Is that all right? Just nod your head if you've noticed what Saul said. 
Saul realized he'd messed up, and then, but he says, yeah, I've messed up, but honor me now. Honor me here, honor me in front of other people. Here, now, and in front of other people, okay? Then we're going to fast forward like 20 years. This is now King David. Now, this is the king that God chooses to replace Saul, right? And I think you can see in this story why. Now, David becomes king, and he leads massively, incredibly successfully for many, many years. He ex- extends the empire of Israel a long way out, which gives them prosperity and security. And then on a particular season where they were supposed to go out, you're supposed to go out in the springtime and beat back your enemies. The reason you have to do that is because then you can sow seeds and then you can reap a harvest. But if you don't beat back your enemies first, what you'll do is you'll sow seeds and then your enemies will reap the harvest. Right? So there's a, that's a whole idea that you need to get into your life as well. You, there's a time where you have to beat things back so that in the future you get the harvest, right? You, you also have to sow seeds, but you can't just sow seed in amongst your enemies. Because I think we do that quite a bit. We're like, oh, I'm going to start this new idea, I'm going to start that new idea, but what we have to do is have, we have to kill some enemies first and create some territory for ourselves, right? That's just a bit extra for free. David, David, though, doesn't go out to war. He stays home, and then one evening he's up on his roof, because he knows that in the evening time, all the ladies in the area bathe themselves on the roof of their house. David's house is the tallest house, so he can get a view of other people's wives while they're bathing, okay? You can, that's what happens. He sees somebody, uh, and then he just, because he, he's the king, he sends for her, and she's brought to him. He seduces her and sleeps with her while her husband is fighting the war for David. Right, so you should be shocked. Like that's a deeply shocking act. But then David ultimately has to engineer the murder of this woman's husband to cover the fact that he did that. She becomes pregnant, so he engineers the murder of Uriah, and then and then Uriah gets murdered. Or Uriah gets killed in the battle because David tricks everybody. David has this plot. He gets killed in the battle, and then David brings. Uh, Bathsheba, the now widow, he brings her into his house. And nobody knows what really happened except God. But to everybody else, it looked like David is looking after the widow of one of his generals who was killed. That's what it looks like to everybody else. So it looks like David's a really good man, but really this act is proving that David is the same as us. He's got a streak of evil, right? Nathan, who's the prophet, is told by God to go and confront David. And Nathan says this. Watch what Nathan says. He says, you're the person. This is what the Lord says. I anointed you over king of Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house, your master's wives into your arms. And I gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. I gave you rulership. If this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You struck down Uriah, the Hittite, that's the husband, with the sword, and you've taken his wife to be your wife. You've killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. Because you despise me and you've taken Uriah, the Hittite, to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will rise up evil against you out of your own house. 
I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. This is the harshest thing God says in the whole Bible. It's, it's, this is brutal. David's sin is, is brutal, and then God comes and he now is cursing David as brutally as he curses anybody else. He, he says, there's going to be death and destruction in your family forever. I'm going to raise up a civil war against you from one of your own sons, right? And then someone's going to take your wives and publicly humiliate them and you in front of everybody else, right? This is one of the scary parts of the Bible, right? So David's confronted by the fact that even though he was aiming to be God's king and do God's work, he has hit the ground, just the same as Saul was confronted. He was supposed to be honoring God, honoring God's word, but he hits the ground. Saul hits the ground and he says to the prophet, honor me now, honor me here, honor me in front of these people. David repents as well and he writes a psalm, which I think we've got the scripture for as well. Have we? I made this PowerPoint myself. David writes Psalm 52 and he says, Restore to me the joy of my salvation and renew a right spirit within me. Okay? If you read through Psalm 52, which is David's Psalm of Repentance, he left out quite a bit that I would have put in it. I would have been like, Restore to me the joy of my salvation. Renew a right spirit within me. Make sure there's no civil war. Don't let anyone steal my family. Don't let someone humiliate me publicly. Please don't let everyone find out about this. Right? These are two, these are two critically different responses to failure. Saul's failure appears to be technical, and David's failure is gross. Right? But the difference is where they were aiming all along. David had a heart after God's own heart. And when he realizes he's hit the ground, he's not looking for a restoration of the here and now. He's not looking for honor right now. He's not looking for, oh, this is going to be the best year ever. He says, no, I want back my vision. I want back the promise. I want back eternity. I want back the plan of God. Saul says, okay, I've lost the plan. I've lost the vision. I've lost the promise, but honor me here in the failure. Honor me in the failure. Honor me now and honor me in front of other people. We've got to get away from saying, oh, this is going to be the best year ever and saying, I'm going to pursue God for all of my life, for everything, with everything God's given me. It's, we've got to get away from saying, this is my business is going to grow by 12% and say, my business is going to transform the way other people do business. My business has got to shift the kingdom of heaven to earth. This is a little summary. This is what Saul did. So Saul accepts the loss of destiny and pleads for momentary comfort. Comfort me. I want to feel good here and now. David embraces the crushing curses of God. The creator of the universe personally speaks to David and says, I am going to destroy you. And David says, okay, but restore to me my vision. 
David accepts the crushing consequences of his own sin in the here and now, but pleads with God for the restoration of eternal purposes and eternal promises. I think we need to be people who pay close attention to the trajectory of our thinking, the trajectory of our life, and pay less attention to where the discus actually lands. When the discus hits the grass, we just need to pick it up and throw it again, right? Because same with your diet, right? Yes, Wednesday. But the problem with the reason you hit the ground on Wednesday is because you wanted to be comforted in the here and now anyway with your diet. Oh, I feel good eating. I just feel good eating cream donuts. Right? You feel good eating a cream donut, right? But then you lost your vision for your six-pack next summer, right? This is how Jesus said it because he said everything best. He said, don't worry about anything. Don't worry about... This is what he says, don't worry about what you'll eat, what you drink, don't worry about what you're going to wear, right? He said, don't worry about any of that. He said, seek first the kingdom of God, right? Don't worry about what you're going to eat. So to, this is to starving people, he said, don't worry about what you're going to eat, people in the desert. Don't worry about what you're going to drink. And then he says to all of us, don't worry about what you're going to wear. Now, this is the thing. This is the big worry. This is the anxiety, right? We've all had that dream. You're walking down the corridor at school, and you remembered everything that day except putting your clothes on, right? Hopefully, it was only ever a dream. But if Jesus can say, Jesus can say to people living in a desert in poverty, don't worry about what you're going to eat. Don't worry about what you're going to drink. Don't worry about what you will wear, Right? These are big, big statements. Seek first the kingdom of God and all the other things work out. This is what David did. David's seeking this kingdom plan, this destiny plan, and all the other things have to work out. Do you know what? 2019 may be the best year ever, but it also might be the worst. The critical thing is not what the year is going to be like. The critical thing is what are you aiming at? Because whatever it's going to be like, it will go better if you're aiming for eternity. You could have the best year ever, have a terrible aim, and never achieve what God's called you to achieve this year. You could have the worst year ever, but be aiming at God's purpose, be aiming at God's promise, be aiming at God's plan, and you will turn the worst situation into the best possible outcomes in your life based on your aim. The hard thing is, the hard thing is Wednesday, the way. Good. Sunday's great, inspired. Monday's awesome, getting started. But Wednesday, when the discus hits the grass, that's the cha- this is where it matters, right? Because how many times can you pick up a discus and throw it again? Well, there's, pro- there's probably no limit to how many times you could physically do that. It's 500 grams, especially if you get a kid's one. But how hard is it to keep aiming? How hard is it to go, I need your grace, God. I need your presence in my world. I, I, I've fallen short of what your plan is, right? Straighten the arrow of my life. Put more weight in me. Help me to trust you again and fire me again, God. How hard is that? Well, it's not hard except it is. Because in the middle of that, you have to deal with disappointment. So you have two choices. 
you see where you land on Wednesday and say, oh, this is what I was planning all along. It was just a two-day diet. And you start a movement on the internet of a new diet where you just diet between Monday and Wednesday. That's what Saul did. He said, just honor me here. Let's just call this the target. Let's just imagine that this is what I was aiming at. Let's all pretend that. That, that, You just say that and don't, because then you don't have to deal with the disappointment of picking it up again. And some people in this room, you've been reluctant because you know God's calling you to pick it up again. There's a temptation in you just to do the year again. Oh, it's another year. Let's just do another year. But God's saying, no, pick up vision again. I didn't call you to be a business person. I called you to be a kingdom person. I didn't call you to be a nurse. I called you to be a kingdom person. I didn't call you to be a school teacher. I called you to change cultures and transform communities. I didn't call you just to live in a suburb. I called you to impact and influence the neighbors around you. I didn't call you just to serve on the hosting team. I called you to create atmosphere and services that set other people free. We've got to keep our eyes firmly fixed on the vehicle that God, the promises that God's got, not on the grass where the discus has landed. Maybe close your eyes for a second. It's, it's time to pray. Dealing with disappointment is, is one of your biggest challenges because you'll be disappointed by the people around you. You'll be disappointed by people that you trust, but more difficultly, more intensely, you'll be disappointed by your own inability to do what you decided you were going to do. That is a deeply disappointing feeling. And I'm just going to assume without getting a show of hands that enough people in the room know what I'm talking about. What I found how the Holy Spirit deals with disappointment, because for me what disappointment feels like is when something doesn't work out how you hoped it would and partly it's your fault, you, you, you feel like you're carrying like a big bag of sand now. So you're still trying to run the race or you're still trying to aim at the target, but now you have to do that while you're carrying a bag of sand from last month or last year's or the last decade's disappointments. And sometimes we come to God and we say, God, just take away this bag of sand. But what I've found the Holy Spirit do is that He doesn't take away the bag of sand, He just puts a hole in it. So maybe you can feel that bag of sand. Maybe you even want to hold it in your hands. Maybe there's a weight of disappointment. Maybe it's one thing. Maybe it's just a feeling that's rested upon you because of a tough year or a tough season. But just as you're holding it, what the Holy Spirit does, He just runs a knife along the edge of the bag and the sand runs out. Do you know, you'll always be able to remember every mistake you've made. But it doesn't need to be as heavy as it is right now. Because you sort of still need to remember all the times you've messed up. You still need all the empty bags. But the Holy Spirit just lets the sand out of it. So that even though, yeah, you made those mistakes or yeah, you messed up that plan, you can still remember that, but it doesn't hold you back from envisioning again what God's called you to do. Or more importantly, who God has called you to be. Come on, you're His masterpiece. You are made to hit a target. 
just going to pray. If that's you, just respond in your heart to the Holy Spirit. Just even open your hands. Even just let that sand run out. Let that weight run out. Holy Spirit, right across this room, we just invite you to minister into people's hearts and minister into people's lives. Lord God, where there's been, where there's been disappointment, where there's been mistakes made, where there's been, uh, there's just been that feeling of hitting the ground short. Lord, our Holy Spirit, we just invite you just to release by the grace of Jesus Christ, just release people from the weight of that. Lord God, we thank you that on the cross you died, taking upon yourself the weight of sin so that we don't have to carry it. Lord, we thank you that you called out and told us to come to you, Lord God, when we labor and are heavy laden, that you would give us rest and that you would connect us to your purpose and to your plan. So Holy Spirit, we just pray, Lord God, as we start 2019, Lord God, that we begin with a fresh lift in our spirit, a fresh vision, a fresh view in our eyes, Lord God, and an aim for our life that's going further than ever before.